Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey there. Welcome back to another season of Novel Conversations. Before we start the show, I wanted to recommend another great podcast about books. It's the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. If you enjoy listening to Novel Conversations, I think you'll really enjoy this podcast as well. The Professional Book Nerds podcast offers up book recommendations and interviews your favorite authors every Monday and Thursday. Both Jill Grunenwald and Adam Sokol have spent their careers in the book world and have an inside look on exciting books you're going to love. In addition to their twice-a-week episodes, each month they preview the best new books coming out. They're not just book nerds, they're professional book nerds. Visit professionalbooknerds.com, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or check them out on our own network, evergreenpodcast.com. All right, up next, Novel Conversations. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This Novel Conversation is about the novel The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, and I'll be joined in conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Elizabeth Flood and Phil Setnick. Elizabeth, Phil, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Frank? I'm doing fine, thanks. Before we get started, I came up with three or four lines that I think can get us started on The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is the story of Huck Finn as he travels down the Mississippi and into the heart of America. With runaway slave Jim as his companion, Huck seeks to escape the civilizing effects of his guardian, the widow Douglas, and the uncivilized life his abusive father would impose. And he seeks adventures. Jim, Jim just seeks his freedom. The people they meet and the adventures they have, while both Huck and America come of age struggling with the great issue of the time, make up the novel of Huckleberry Finn. You know, I really want to get into this novel and talk about it, but before we do, it actually starts with an explanatory note. Phil, do you want to talk a little bit about that note before we actually start talking about the adventures of Huckleberry Finn? The novel starts kind of before it starts with a preliminary explanation by the author on the dialects he's going to be using. That's right. Huck's dialect might read to us almost the same as Jim's dialect. But if you actually parse out the words and try to say them out loud, they are using different vocabulary. And different punctuation. Jim's dialect takes getting used to. It's hard to read. You almost have to read it out loud to understand it. All right, Elizabeth, there's also a notice that the author puts in the novel before he actually starts the novel. I love this notice. Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot. (laughs) So, Phil, tell me how this novel actually starts. Well, it's told by Huck, first person. He begins to recount briefly what happened in the previous book, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. It tells us a little bit about the found money that the robbers hid in the cave. 
That's right. Huck's got $6,000. And in 1855, he's probably one of the richest people in his town. That was a lot of money. And Elizabeth, what does he tell us about his living situation? That's also changed from his earlier adventures in the novel Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Well, he sort of admits to getting used to being civilized. He's living with the widows. He's going to school. He's learning how to read. The widows? Two sisters, the widows Douglas and Watson. They're sending him to school. They're dressing him, keeping him clean, making him eat at a table and say prayers. All the things that Huck just can't stand. Yes, and doesn't understand. Occasionally when it gets to him, he sneaks out at night and sleeps in the forest and smokes and swears, and then he feels better the next day. For Huck, being civilized is to say some things before he eats. That's confusing to him, to speak in front of your food. He doesn't understand. He's supposed to say thanks for it, but he wonders to whom, for what. He's also confused because each of the widows has a different god that they worship. One has a more merciful god, and I think it's Miss Watson's god. He's perhaps a little bit more wrathful. For sure. The fire and brimstone is alive and well in that house. <laughs> but when Huck gets a chance, he does go off and he has his own little adventures. Uh, actually has some fun with Tom Sawyer. They form a gang. They do. They had planned that in the last book, and they made good on it. Tom Sawyer's gang. But Tom has some very serious rules if you want to be in his gang. Huck almost didn't make it in. Part of the rule is that if you snitch on the gang, then the gang will kill your family. <laughs> and since Huck doesn't really have any family around to speak of, except his father, who they don't know where he is, they almost don't let him in because they would have no one to kill. But Huck can solve this problem. He offers up the widows. Hmm. You can have them if I snitch on the gang. <laughs> there is another problem with him joining the gang, though, too. Tom tells him that you have to be respectable to be in a robber gang. And by living out in the woods and not being civilized, well, then you can't be a robber. Yeah. It's clear here that Tom is really deep into a fantasy world that he's read about in books. He is. We have a sense here, Huck is a little more of a realist. And from his perspective, we see how silly Tom is. But he's such an alpha in their group. And Huck is thinking, well, Tom is more civilized. He's more educated. I'll believe what he says. And, well, that's why he's the alpha, because of these beliefs, because of some of these fantasies that he's read. And it's clear he's read some very interesting novels, but maybe only bits and pieces of them. I have to say this whole little passage really took me back to when I was a kid. We had our little clubs. Did you make blood oaths like they do? I think we tried, yeah, when we were very young. It was always hard to actually prick your finger to get the blood, though, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Frank, you just had to pick a scab. Oh, sure. I uh, wish I'd thought of that then. It would have made it a whole lot easier when I was a kid. So one of the funnier pieces is after he finishes talking about the oath, which goes, if the member of the gang snitches, he says, must have his throat cut and then have his carcass burnt up and the ashes scattered all around <laughs> and his name blotted off the list with blood and never mentioned again by the gang, but have a curse put on it and be forgot forever. And then the next line is, everybody said it was a beautiful oath. It was a beautiful <laughs> oath. But what was it that Tom wanted to do with this gang? They were going to rob and steal, and the women were going to be captured. And eventually, Tom said, the women would fall in love with him. Actually, I have the quote. This is what they're going to do with the female hostages. Quote, kill the women. No, nobody saw anything in the books like that. You fetch them to the cave, and you're always as polite as pie to them. And by and by, they fall in love with you and never want to go home anymore. That's his plan for the women. The plan for the men, though, is, of course, yeah, they got to kill them. Except for the few that will be ransomed. That's one of my favorite parts. I laughed out loud. But none of them know the definition of ransom. Well, it's clear they don't need to know. That's just what robbers do. In the next chapter of this novel, something occurs that actually happens in several of the chapters. They skip a lot of time. So now we're four months later, and sure enough, Huck's in school. And so Huck explains that at first he hated school. 
But then he started to enjoy it as he began to be able to read and write. And have friends. He enjoyed the social aspect of school. And of course, he had to remain respectable and stay in the gang. Right. But these moments of uh, somewhat civilized living are not going to last very long. He comes home one night. He sees some tracks in the forest and realizes who it is. And we don't realize who it is, but we can tell through his urgency that it's something dangerous. So he runs to Judge Thatcher and quickly signs over his money to the judge. Who could sense the urgency in his voice. And he said, all right, I won't ask you questions. Here's a dollar. I will now own your fortune for you. But of course, the judge knew he was making a deal with a 12-year-old, and he would continue to invest the money for him. And it's actually quickly revealed what scared Huck so much. Huck goes home, and he finds his dad, his pap, waiting in his room. Having climbed in the window. Of course, the father has heard by now his son has such a great fortune, and he's come to claim his son and take his fortune. Yeah, and even more importantly, his father has heard that he can read and write. He even makes Huck pick up a book and read it, and this makes Pap very, very angry. Sure, he's furious. How dare you think you're better than me? I can't read. Why should you be able to read? And so the tone of the book, I think, turns there to something a little more realistic and dangerous. Having come right off these still kind of boyish, fantastical adventures with Tom Sawyer to this reality that Huck actually has some real problems. And it gets much worse for Huck. Pat Finn is a real robber. He tries to get custody of his son from the widows, and the new judge in town doesn't know the history. So he says it is his right to keep his own child. And it's interesting that he's using the entitlement of someone to own another. So they try to reform Huck's father, take him into their home. Who tries to reform Pat? The new judge. And that's a disaster, too. He just can't stay sober. You know, what I found interesting was that Pap actually took a chance with the law, as you said. He felt that he had an ownership right. But as soon as the courts don't seem to be giving him what he wants, i.e. Huck and his fortune... Well, he resorts to what he knows best. He just kidnaps Huck and takes him off into the woods. Yep, he takes him down river to an old cabin. Some old fisherman's shack. Uh Uh-huh. He stays there for three or four months and actually gets used to it and can't even imagine being civilized after staying with Pap for a while. Even though Pap locks him in the cabin when he leaves and comes home drunk and beats him. You know, as Huck says, the only real downside was the beatings. If you get past the beatings, he was having a pretty good adventure of his own. He was smoking and swearing, and this is the world he knew. And we do find out that he's been trying to escape from the cabin when he's locked in, but he hasn't been able to find anything to get out of this cabin. And he starts longing for what he doesn't have anymore. When he was told he had to go to school, he didn't want to go to school. Now that he's told you can't go to school, he wants to go to school. So he does decide he's got to get out of there. Well, the beatings are getting worse, and Pap is getting more and more drunk. Pap is so abusive on that last occasion and so drunk... Pap tries to kill him, so Huck knows he's got to leave and he needs a plan. So the next time Pap leaves, Huck decides to put his plan into action. He's already stowed a canoe in a nearby creek that he had found floating down the river, and he basically faked his own death. He goes into the woods and kills a hog. He crashes the front door of the cabin down with an axe and sets up the scene. Phil, he even drags a heavy rock and a sack through the grass to the boat landing as if a body had been carried off. That's right. He plants little details. He plants things that might have been stolen and dropped along the way. And his plan is ultimately successful. Right. He gets into his canoe, hides down in it, and just lets the river drift him along. Right. And where does he go? He goes to the island where he played with Tom, Jackson Island. This is where the boys played robbers and pirates in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Correct. And he knows his plan is successful because the next day, the steamboat is coming down the river with Pap and Tom and Aunt Sally. The whole town. 
the widows, and they're sending out the loaves of bread that are supposed to make the bodies rise. So he grabs a loaf of bread for his lunch. This is a much better plan, executed in much more detail, and Huck doesn't even realize his own skill. So now Huck's on Jackson Island living by himself, and again, he's sort of enjoying the freedoms he's got. He can smoke when he wants, he has breakfast when he wants, and he naps when he wants. But he soon learns he's not alone on this island, and Elizabeth, who's on the island with him, is quite a surprise. It is a surprise. He's shocked to find Jim. What would Jim be doing there? And remind us again who Jim was? Well, Jim is the widow's slave, and here he is, living in the woods, so it's suspect why he's not with her. Was Jim happy to see Huck? Poor Jim thinks Huck's a ghost because, of course, Huck is dead to everybody in the town, and Jim is so superstitious. And it takes Huck weeks to convince Jim that he's actually flesh and blood. When he finally relays the whole story of his plot to leave his father, Jim is quite impressed. But Phil, what is Jim doing on this island? He's a slave. Jim's on the island because he's overheard one of the widows talking about selling him. She could get $800 for him. And he doesn't want to leave his family, obviously, so he takes off. So now he's an escaped slave, and Huck doesn't really know what to make of that. Well, his first reaction is that's so terrible because he knows that is what the society would say. But his other instinct is to say, well, that would be so terrible to sell Jim and to have to have him leave his family. He's clearly so upset. Yeah, at this point in the book, he really begins to wrestle with some issues of morality. It's very clear that he's torn between what he's known his whole life, which is, if there's an escaped slave, you report him to the authorities. On the other hand, he knows Jim so well. He knows that Jim would be taken away from his family. He's really torn. And this is how Huck Finn talks about it in the novel. I quote, Jim said it made him feel all trembly and feverish to be so close to freedom. Well, I can tell you it made me all trembly and feverish to hear him, because I'd begun to get it through my head that he was most free. And who was to blame for that? Why me? I couldn't get that out of my conscience. No how, no way. It got to troubling me, so I couldn't rest. I couldn't stay still in one place. It had never come home to me before, what this thing was that I was doing. But now it did. And it stayed with me and scorched me more and more. End quote. Just as Huck wants his freedom from his pap, it's reasonable to expect that Jim would want to be free as well. Yes, and, and this begins a major relationship that the entire book turns on, and also most of the plot. And while they're on the island, Jim and Huck have a couple of adventures of their own, don't they? They find a cave. They explore the island. Jim actually gets bitten by a rattlesnake, and they see a house go floating by. A house goes floating by? Yes, exactly. Huck and Jim decide to explore the house. They hear voices coming from it. And it turns out to be two robbers who've also jumped on the house, or were in the house, when it floated away. We don't know. Essentially, they're scavengers, just as Huck and Jim look in to see whatever they can get out of the house. Yes, and they also find the body of a man. And Jim covers the man's face and won't allow Huck to see the man, but they also gather some loot, a couple of calico dresses, I believe. That's right, but then they're heard, so they need to make their escape pretty quickly. They jumped back into their canoe, back to the island. But Elizabeth, there comes a time when Huck learns that they really do need to leave the area. That's right. Huck took some of the clothing from this house and disguised himself as a girl and ventured back into town to see what was going on and catch up on the news. He dressed as a girl? He did. It's hysterical. He really believed that he looked and sounded like a real little girl. He visits a woman in a house nearby and thinks that he's completely fooling her. But she figures out pretty soon that this is a boy she's got in her house. Well, she tricks him two ways to find out that this is a boy. Well, she tosses him some yarn, which he catches by putting his legs together. She says, of course, any girl would know you'd catch the yarn in your skirt. 
And she asks him to throw something to her, and of course he throws it like a boy. So she sends him along and says, Now trot along to your uncle, Sarah Mary Williams George Alexander Peters, because he's made up this ridiculous name and can't keep it straight. She also adds, which I thought was funny, You do a girl tolerable poor, but you might fool men, maybe. <laughs> that is funny. You won't fool the women, but you might fool the men. Right. <laughs> and this woman realizes this is a boy, but of course she doesn't know it's Huck Finn. And so she tells him the story of Huck Finn, and that story shocks him. She tells him it's Jim who's murdered him. Everyone suspects the runaway slave to have killed Huck and then run away because they both went missing at the same time. Huck needs to get out of here, and he needs to get to Jim. So he hurries back to the island, and they quickly pack everything up, and they're off down the river. And they know now everyone's going to be looking out for a runaway slave. Who killed a white boy. So they put their raft out into the middle of the Mississippi River and let the current take them away. And it's on this journey now that we really start to learn a little bit more about Huck and Jim and their growing relationship. Yeah, Jim is missing his family so deeply. He's sobbing, he cries during the night, he puts his head on his arms and knees and cries, and Huck realizes this man has so much emotion. He makes a comment, much like a white man. He really didn't think a slave would miss his children. That he would have this emotional capacity, and this recognition and respect deepen this friendship. However, Huck still has a bit of the boyish mischief in him, and at a certain point they become separated. Jim on the raft and Huck on the canoe. And they're kind of searching for each other through the fog of the river, calling out to each other. And Huck finally comes upon Jim and finds him asleep, gets onto the raft. Jim wakes up and he says, quote, Oh, I've been here the whole time. You were just dreaming, end quote. This really confuses Jim for days, actually. Huck realizes that Jim is so confused after a while that Huck becomes really remorseful about it and upset that he's tricked him. And here's how Huck describes it. It made me feel so mean. It was 15 minutes before I could work myself up to go and humble myself to Jim. But I'd done it, and I weren't ever sorry for it afterward neither. I didn't do him no more mean tricks, and I wouldn't have done that one if I'd have known it would have made him feel that way. There's some real remorse here. There's remorse, and there's a real sense of a growing friendship. Jim had the emotions a parent would have when they think they've lost their child. Huck's getting more love from Jim than he ever got from his pap. Right. But they're floating down the river, and the adventures continue. At one point, they're actually run over by a steamboat. Yep, and are separated. So Huck goes in one direction and ends up on the shore, and this puts him in the middle of a family feud. Kind of a funny scene here between the Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons, since they've been killing each other for years. And neither family really remembers why, but they just continue to kill each other. It's really a great satirizing of Southern aristocracy. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily... That's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. You've got this colonel dressed up in his white suit, taking his sons out to kill the other colonel in his white suit and their son. After they were in church together. That's right. With their guns between their knees and the preacher preaching about brotherly love. Then they go back to their fields and shoot each other. Now Huck comes close to getting shot at in the middle of this feud, but actually it turns out pretty well for him in the end because he finds Jim. One of the slaves from the Grangerfords takes Huck to see some quote-unquote water moccasins, and it ends up being Jim in the forest. And they're both very glad to see each other. They're actually relieved and ecstatic to find each other. And not only that, 
but Jim was able to save most of the raft so they can get back on their raft and get down the river and continue to have their adventures. But now they run into a couple of really interesting guys, the Duke and the King. Here's another turn in the story, too, because this gets a little scary. Phil, who are these guys? These are two grifters, conmen, really, who Huck winds up saving. They're essentially being chased out of a town, and they jump on the raft with Huck, and then they give us their story. This is where they begin to impress Huck and Jim, and they make up their own lineage. And who do they claim they are? They claim to be the Duke of Bilgewater and the heir to the French throne. The long-lost son of the King of France, the Dauphin. And Jim and Huck believe him. Well, Jim is thrilled to meet a Frenchman. He can't wait to hear somebody speak French. And I think Huck believes it at first, but then he gets suspicious. He eventually tumbles to them, right? But he knows it's a little bit easier to go along and get along. Right. Yeah, at a certain point, I think even Huck says that he has learned in these situations, it's best just to keep your mouth shut. And I think he learned that from his pap. (laughs) And here we are. There's a child and an escaped slave. So really, they don't have a lot of claim for control of their raft, and they know that they could be in danger if their stories are revealed, too. And actually, at first, these two guys help out Huck and Jim. They come up with a plan to allow them to be able to run the raft in the daylight. Up until now, they've had to hide during the day and run at night because they're running with an escaped slave. Right. So what's the plan? The idea is that they have actually captured Jim and they're taking him back. So that allows them to move freely about because Jim looks like a tied-up escaped slave. With two male adults on a raft, it's a little bit easier to convince people that this is a captured slave. Right. But the adventures continue. Oh, they do. The king and the duke, they're working up a scheme for the next town they come to. They decide to put on a show because one of them claims to be a great theater actor. A Shakespearean actor. Exactly. And this brings us to one of the funnier passages, which is the soliloquy from Hamlet that has been kind of cobbled together, I think, from Macbeth and a couple other plays that to be or not to be, and he made it up. He writes it out as he remembers it, and he gets the duke to memorize it. He says, this is the speech. To be or not to be, that is the bare bodkin. That makes calamity of so long life. Well, clearly they know they're Shakespeare. How does their performance go? Well, the performance is a disaster, and they get run out of town. But they're not daunted. No, they're professionals. They just shift gears and begin to plan their next scheme. But first, they've got to get to a town that would not have heard about the disaster in the previous town. So they float on down the river, they stop at the next unsuspecting town, and now what? Now they're planning for their next show. But it's going to be a little bit different from their last show. It sure is. They're calling it The King's Camel Leopard, or The Royal Nunsuch. Sounds a little Shakespearean. But what's the hook? The hook is no women and children. Ladies and children not admitted. Not admitted? Why? Well, we don't know why yet, but everybody in town is interested to see it for that very reason. And what do they see that first night? Well, this camel leopard is a made-up human animal that the Duke portrays, and he's nearly naked, cavorts around the stage, everyone laughs for a few minutes, but then the show's over. That's it. But Phil, these guys are shrewd and smart. What do they tell their audience? They have a great plan, which is to convince the audience that if they let the other townspeople know what a joke this show is, they'll be looked on as fools. So they convince the audience to go around the town, telling people what a great show it is, and the next night it's packed again, and it's just as terrible. Just as terrible. And they say the same thing. However, the third night, Huck detects the sweet scent of rotting cabbage and dead cats. This time, the last night of the performance, the audience is ready for these guys. And that's when they make their escape back to the river. With all the admission fees. Yes, of course. 
and back on the raft, back down the river. But Elizabeth, it's not long before they've got another con they can play. A big one. They learn that there's a gentleman in the next town who's just passed away, and he left quite a fortune to his daughters. And they're expecting two brothers from overseas for the funeral proceedings. So the Duke and the King pumped this guy for more information about the brothers and the family. They figure they can take the roles of these brothers. They're English aristocracy, so they begin to put on a very poorly affected English accent. Just terrible. And one of them is to be deaf, so he's mimicking what he thinks is sign language. Yeah, even though these guys are conmen and they're kind of sinister, they're extremely funny throughout the book. Because they seem so incompetent to us. Exactly, and I think that's why they're often successful. Well, does this con work out any better than their Shakespeare plays? Well, the daughters do believe that these are their uncles, and they were closer to getting a larger pot of money. There was almost $6,000 up for grabs here. But of course, the Rio brothers did show up, and they had to duck out of town again. Huck and Jim got away faster and were able to get on the raft, and for a moment thought they were free of the king and the duke. But of course, later on down the river, they ran across them again, and so they're all back together. And now they're going to stay on this raft and drift on down the river for days. They've got to get away from any town that might have heard of any of these stories. But they do finally come to a town that hasn't heard anything, and so the king and the duke decide to go ashore and see if they can pull another con. Because they've lost all their money after the last con, and their only chance to make some money now is to turn Jim in. Is that what happens? Well, Huck goes into town and sees them playing cards and drinking, and then he returns to the raft and Jim's gone, and he runs across somebody who says that they caught a runaway slave and he's at the Phelps. Down the river. And we know it's the Duke and the King that turned him in. So Huck knows where he is and he follows him, but when he gets to the Phelps farm, a strange thing happens. It's expected, but not expected. Uh, I think you better explain that one. Well, they think he's Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer? So Tom is Phelps' nephew. And of course, Huck completely plays along with this. But Huck knows that Tom is on his way, so he goes to intercept Tom and tells him what's up. How does Tom react when he sees a ghost? It takes Tom quite some convincing for him to believe that Huck's alive. But he finally does, and of course they make a plan. Essentially, Huck says to Tom, we need a plan to rescue Jim. He's being held as a runaway slave. We've got to get him out of here. Boy, is Tom excited now. He gets to come up with a plan. He's into it the first minute it's mentioned. Now, they each come up with a plan. Huck's plan is to pick the lock, take Jim out of the hut, get on the raft, and head down the river. Yep. Huck's plan is very realistic and simple. Tom's plan, however, involves many obstacles that he kind of dreams up. Now, it becomes clear as Tom tells us his plan, he's read a little bit too much of the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, he's now seeing an opportunity for a great adventure. For them to rescue Jim, not only are they going to have to saw off the bed leg to release the chain that Jim's connected to, but they've got to eat the sawdust so no one will see it and discover the plan. It takes them a week. (laughs) And they insist that Jim write them notes in his own blood, and they pass him sheets and things to write on, and he's got to carve a pen to do this. They spend two weeks building a rope sheet ladder that they don't need. But the rope sheet ladder is in all the books. The difference between Huck and Tom is so clear. It becomes very clear. This is real life for Huck. This is life and death for Jim. Yeah. But for Tom, it's an adventure. And this is where we really see that Huck has really been making adult decisions. And Tom really is still a kid. Absolutely. But Jim, Jim doesn't understand any of this. But he'll do it. They've been so close this whole time. Jim's very trusting, and he's the most mature out of all of them at the end. So how does this adventure end? Well, it has a couple of phases. They do make a break for it one night, but it has a disastrous ending. Tom is shot by the group that's gone out after them. Tom gets shot? Does Jim escape? 
No, Jim determines this is where he needs to be a good friend to Tom. Jim does? Yes. So Jim abandons the escape and turns around to bring himself back to the farm and get Tom some help. Let's be clear. It's Jim who tells Huck we've got to get him to a doctor. Yes. So Jim sacrifices himself to save Tom. Sure, because when the doctor goes to see Tom, he finds Jim. Yes. So after all these plans, Tom gets shot, Huck gets found out, and Jim gets recaptured. You would think this is the lowest point of the story for them all. But we have one more surprise, don't we? Aunt Polly. Aunt Polly? Aunt Polly comes to visit her sister. She had a suspicious letter that her sister had enjoyed Sid's arrival. Aunt Polly knew something was up. That's right. Let's remember, Huck was playing Tom. So when Tom shows up, he has to play Sid, his half-brother. So now that Aunt Polly has arrived, the game is over, essentially. And she also has the news that Jim is, in fact, free because one of the widows has passed away, and in her will, she had freed him. Now, Tom knew this. He had never told anybody. The whole time! But he knew this. And again, this points to what you said earlier, that this really shows us the difference between Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. If Huck Finn had had this news about Jim, he would have shared it with Jim immediately. This is where I don't like Tom so much. No. You get mad at him. I mean, Huck and Jim have been through so much and risked their lives so many times that for Tom to play with their lives this way, you're angry with Tom. But after Aunt Polly surprises us, Jim has a surprise of his own. All along, Huck is still kind of worried about Pap, his father, coming after him. And Jim lets Huck know that it was actually Pap who was the dead man in the house, the house that had been floating down the river. And that's why he covered his face and wouldn't let Huck see his face. That's right. So now Jim is free and Huck is free. And those are the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Phil, Elizabeth, what I'd like is for you to share some moments or passages from the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Elizabeth, do you have something for us? I do. I particularly enjoyed a description of the Colonel Grangerford character whom Huck spent some time with when he and Jim got separated on the river because this was a great description of a Southern gentleman, the plantation owner. It sounds like a description of maybe a Colonel Sanders cartoonish man almost, but it might be what one might picture Mark Twain to look like, and I'll read it for you. Quote, Colonel Grangerford was very tall and very slim and had a darkish, paley complexion, not a sign of red in it anywheres. He was clean-shaved every morning all over his thin face, and he had the thinnest kind of lips and the thinnest kind of nostrils. His hands were long and thin, and every day of his life, he put on a clean shirt and a full suit from head to foot, made out of linen so white it hurt your eyes to look at it, end quote. You know, I've got to tell you, I'm very intrigued by the possibility that it's Mark Twain writing about himself in this passage. Phil, do you have a moment or a quote that you wanted to share with us? Sure. I rather enjoyed the first meeting of the Duke and the King, the two grifters. It goes like this. When they first meet, you get the sense that it's almost just like two businessmen or two lawyers or two doctors talking about their trade. One asks the other, what's your line mainly? Jure printer by trade. Do a little patent medicines, theater actor, tragedy, you know. Take a turn to mesmerize them, phrenology, when there's a chance to. Teach singing, geography school for a change, sling a lecture sometimes. Oh, I do lots of things. Most anything that comes handy so it ain't work. What's your lay? So the other one goes on to explain his specialties, everything from healing cancer and paralysis to telling fortunes. He says he's able to tell fortunes, quote, mainly when I've got somebody along to find out the facts for me, end quote. 
And, you know, I get the feeling that Mark Twain was speaking from some experience about these kinds of characters, roaming the land, ripping people off, essentially. Sure. Possibly he felt the same way about writing the book at the time. That would explain his author's note at the very beginning. Yeah. I've got a quote here that I wanted to read. It's when Huck's talking about how Pap got to cursing. I like this. Then the old man got to cussing and cussed everything and everybody he could think of, and then cussed them all over again to make sure he hadn't skipped any. And after that, he polished off with a kind of general cuss all around, including a considerable passel of people, which he didn't know the names of, and so called them what's-his-name-this and what's-his-name-that, and went right along cussing. That is so great. Phil, Elizabeth, do you have another one? I particularly thought that Huck's description when he first goes into the Grangerford's house was really funny and very subtle, actually. Huck goes on throughout this passage to describe these melodramatic pictures, each featuring a young lady in a state of mourning, each more melodramatic than the next. Another one was a young lady with her hair all coned up straight to the top of her head, and she was crying into a handkerchief and had a dead bird laying on its back in her other hand. With his heels up and underneath the picture it said, I shall never hear that sweet chirp more, alas. This was all nice pictures, I reckon, but I didn't somehow seem to take to them, because if ever I was down a little, they always gave me the fantods, which I can only assume are the willies. I think that's right, and I think those pictures would give me the willies as well. Elizabeth, do you have another moment? I did. The really touching moment between Huck and Jim on the river. They think they're near the town that will be the point where they'll turn their raft and Jim will be free. They're anticipating it. They've been waiting for it and watching for it all night. Jim says to Huck, quote, Pretty soon I'll be shouting for joy, and then I'll say it's on accounts of Huck. Huck done it. Jim will never forget you, Huck. You've been the best friend Jim's ever had, and you're the only friend old Jim's got now. End quote. And that's exactly the point where Huck was actually having this deliberation in his conscience. Should he turn him in? He knew it's wrong to be out hiding an escaped slave. And then they missed the town. And they're both very disappointed when they realize they've missed that town, missed their point. But, you know, I think I have the quote uh, of that moment that you were talking about when Huck is trying to decide whether he should do the right thing, which in this case would be to turn in the runaway slave. Yeah, in his mind. And he even goes as far as to write a letter. He's having trouble praying, and he thinks if he writes a letter to Miss Watson and makes a confession about the runaway slave, that'll lighten his soul. So he writes the letter, and I quote, Miss Watson, your runaway Jim is down here two miles below Pikesville, and Mr. Phelps has got him, and he will give him up for the reward if you send it. Signed, Huck Finn. And then Huck Finn goes on to say, I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I'd ever felt so in my life, and I know I could pray now. But then he doesn't start to pray right away. He thinks about it a little bit more, and he realizes what he's doing. He's now consigning Jim to be a slave again for the rest of his life. And as we've said throughout our conversation, Huck changes during this novel, and I think this is the point where he pivots. He realizes he can't do this. No matter how right it is, no matter how it might make him feel, he realizes he can't do it. And he finally says, all right then, I'll go to hell. And he tears up the letter. That, for me, is really the moment where The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn becomes one of the world's greatest stories. I agree. That's actually the point where you fall in love with Huckleberry Finn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think that's the point where you really see Huck as representative of this enormous struggle within the heart of the country at the time. And I think it's because Mark Twain was able to put that entire struggle into one small novel that I consider this the first great American novel. And that's where we'll wrap up today's conversation about the novel, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. 
Phil and Elizabeth, I want to thank you both again for coming in and having this conversation with me today. Always a pleasure, Frank. Yes, thank you, Frank. Thanks again. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, formerly the Front Porch People. If you'd like to hear more Novel Conversations, you can go to our new network at evergreenpodcast.com or listen on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. Novel Conversations was produced by Julie Fink and engineered by Sean Rule Hoffman. A special thanks to our executive producer, Joan Andrews, and our researchers, Kate O'Neill and Kevin Kerwin. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.